Hey, Billy, I'm wondering, have you been looking for a way to get better as a coach? Uh, always. That's good because you could do it by using GMS Plus. It's a great resource for courses, drills, stats, videos, tips, and much more. Many of the game's winningest coaches and players, including Heather Olmstead, Keegan Cook, John Spira, Mike Wall, and Courtney Thompson, have used it or are a part of it. They're also actually have been former guests, so you know they're good. Personally, I've learned a lot from Gold Medal Squared, as have many of our guests. So if you're looking to win a state championship or an Olympic gold medal, GMS Plus will help you get there. Get 20% off an annual subscription today. Go to goldmedalsquared.com backslash CYBO and enter CYBO. That's goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO and enter coupon code CYBO. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. We're excited to welcome to the show the mental performance coach, Dr. Matt Jones. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. So you recently joined or helped create a company that's helping performers achieve excellence called the Extra Mile Institute. Can you tell us more about what that is? Yeah, so basically... Uh, our institute was created following some work that our creative founder had done. Uh, so that's Travis Knight. He's a strength coach for men's basketball. So he was doing a lot of work with men's basketball, obviously in the strength and conditioning space, but he wanted to add more in terms of the mental space. So he created and held our essentially 15 minute conversations with the athletes one a week, um, calling them personal growth meetings personal growth Mondays. And so every Monday they would meet for 15 minutes, which doesn't seem like a long time, but in that time period and the consistency of it was able to have a really impactful and in many ways, more ways than one uh, for the guys to dive into just some of the issues they were facing. And you're looking at like a top consistently top 10 basketball team in the nation. Yeah, so we, said obviously, it, we said it offline, yeah. but this is Gonzaga basketball. I don't think you mentioned it, but this is the Gonzaga. Yeah. 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 So this is Gonzaga men's basketball that he is the strength coach with. So yeah, top 10 uh, team in the country consistently. So they're dealing with a lot of external voices, so to say. And so it's about managing those pressures. So out of that work and the impact that he had, we were able to expand and he wanted to invite some people into sort of, see this from an alternative perspective that was happening in the college space and try to go at mental well-being proactively. And so we added a, a few team members, tried to understand our own model, and then basically got off the ground running this past uh, this past fall. But so now we're working with athletes in a team setting, in a course setting, uh, just in various touch points we have with them where we're again, holding these 15 minute proactive, meaningful conversations where they can dive into issues about their sport, but also themselves as people and character and how they can develop that character to help them be a better person, which ultimately, as we find, helps to be a better performer. And how many universities are you working with? I know you guys have kind of just started. And is it only NCAA sports? Yeah, a really good question. So right now we're just working with uh, one university. We are in the midst of expanding um tbd on that relationship as we're navigating building that but that's in the university space we've done some work with uh local high schools and local 
businesses. So we are kind of dabbling in that space. A lot of it right now is just research and design to to see what's working, what's not working. How can we take the information and tailor it to our specific population? So it's really, it is on the ground and working itself up. So we're a lot of R&D right now. Great. Well, our topic today is self-determination theory. Can you start by telling us what this theory is? Yeah. So self-determination theory is comes from the work of Hadesi and Ryan, or Ryan Hadesi, or DC, however you pronounce it. I'm not sure that really matters, um, but does to us nerds who know the name. Uh, so basically, they wanted to understand human motivation um, and what drives us to do things and put more effort and engage and stay on task a little bit better. So that theory that came about was looking, um, looks at self-determination theory, so whether or not motivation is self-determined. And within that, there's there's kind of two facets you can talk about. Uh, one is kind of the intrinsic versus extrinsic nature nature of motivation. Do people are people motivated to do something because it's their sole decision and cause, or are they motivated to get something out of it or to do it for someone? So that would be the extra extrinsic. Intrinsic would be it to do it for the self. So within that, what they found is that there are three essentially core facets of self-determination theory and those are autonomy competence and relatedness and so when those are satisfied within conditions that enables a person or whoever to feel more intrinsically motivated and so within that autonomy is the just the general sense of choice or freedom uh, to do a task that it's of their own free will competence is the mastery um, of doing that task, can they feel like they can succeed in doing that, or at least that they're improving? And then relatedness, do they feel connected to others, or do they feel connected to the task itself? And so when those three things are satisfied, that person is likely to be more intrinsically motivated, which means higher effort, more time on task, versus extrinsically motivated, if those are absence, means less likely to stay on task, less likely to participate in general, uh, easier to give up, uh, yeah, so I'll start there. Was was extrinsic motivation, um, I guess, not meet some of those, um, yeah, demands that intrinsic does? When we think about, as they talk about extrinsic motivation, what they're generally referring to, um, and I won't get into the the detail, but basically anything that's outside of the self. And so when you think of, let's say, autonomy, autonomy meaning like one own free choice. So that won't be present externally when it's someone else forcing you or asking you to do that thing. That's not to say that no autonomy is going to be present in that situation. It's just that it's going to be minimized. Uh, competence, I think it could still happen within that setting of extrinsic or something as pushing you to do something or you're trying to do it. Let's say you're trying to take a test or you're forced to take a test to tell you how smart you are. And that's assessing your competence, so to say. So extrinsically, there's a pressure to do well based on the grade that you'll receive. So you can still feel competent within that setting. But if you're basing your whole competency off a of grade, that's not going to feed much into your desire to get better as it is if you are wanting to learn the subject itself, which is why we like enjoy subjects more than others because we maybe feel more 
connected to it. We feel a little bit more competent and there's no pressure for us to do so well in that task. So those things can be present within an extrinsic setting, but we find that they're more present and more fed into and available in the intrinsic supported environments. And I know your, your PhD is, um, you know, you have a motor learning side to it and the, more of the sports psychology, mental skills side. Is this theory come from psychology or where where's the genesis of, of the theory? The theory comes from psychology and it's a lot within education and pedagogy. I believe a lot of the research is within that space and trying to understand how learners learn more efficiently and can be better at that. Uh, obviously in the sports like space, we take that because we're pulling from psychology to understand human motivation. And so we'll use it in that space. And I think it can still be pulled within the motor behavior, motor learning space too, and providing some of those core tenants to allow someone to maybe learn uh, as a blanket statement a little bit quicker or a little bit easier than if those things aren't present. So then in the, the skill acquisition space, how does a coach uh, best use one of the tenants like autonomy? Like how can they, how can they apply it? How can they, you know, use that, that tenant? Yeah, I think uh, something that I, I get a lot of pushback from coaches from is when you bring up the idea of autonomy, there's a kind of this feeling that you have to give up all your power. And that's like, oh, that means they can just do whatever they want. Well, that's not necessarily the case. It's giving them a choice within a confine. So if you want, if your target is X, how can you give them Y and Z as options to get to X? So there's a little bit more buy-in on their part. And especially if you can explain why, why Y and Z contribute to leading to X, it's just more like, oh yeah, like I'm choosing to do this because I believe that it will get me there. Versus if I'm just telling you to do Y to get to X, then it, like, to me, it's like, is that the only way? Do I really like believe in this? Am I constantly questioning it? So even just the slightest bit of, of choice in something can actually impact choice coupled with why impacts their effort into that task. And then can competency be developed in sports by learning the X's and O's or is it more about being able to actually perform on the field? That's a really good question. And I would say both and it depends in the sense of you can learn all the tactical knowledge in the world and that's great unless you don't have the uh, actual technical skill to couple with it but i look at it like you can be really competent at doing a uh, a ladder drill or like you like the foot footwork on the ladder so you would say in that case you're competent but are you competent in your footwork for the sport it's really hard to say because that ladder work and footwork doesn't really transfer to a sport specific context. So the question then is it's competent or it can be perceived as competent. If what you're doing in practice transfers to what you're doing in actual competition, you can say, yeah, I'm competent in this just because you add an external variable to it, like a, an opponent or a defender or whoever, I think that's still reinforms than the competence that individual have has of that task like isolated i would say i'm competent but then comparatively against someone else i would say yeah i'm competent in the basics but i need to improve on this 
I don't know if that answers your question. What's the what's the difference between confidence and competence? So competence, I would say, is more the actual ability to do something. And confidence is your belief in your ability to do that thing. So you can be, at any moment, you can be highly competent, but you can have very low confidence. Hmm. Let's say you're, you're really a chess wizard, right? And you're really good at chess. But if you're up against Magnus Carlsen, you're going to be like, I'm going to lose. <laughs> like you're, you can perceive yourself as really good and to be competent in that case because you know chess in and out. But maybe it's the opponent that throws off and lowers your confidence. But you can also be overconfident and have low competence because you're just unaware of your own faults and flaws. So more valuable to develop competence than confidence. Is that a fair statement? Yes. And confidence helps bring the full amount of competency along with it. Okay. So So you can be, again, competent in the world, but if you're not, there's no belief in your capabilities, then... Your competency is almost meaningless. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like we can build competence through developing skill. Uh, I guess I thought another way as I was thinking through this was, you know, maybe from coaches feedback from, I guess mm-hmm. that, that's that external example. Um, is that like, what? I guess what would be a more effective source or yeah, what would be more effective coaches feedback or me, you know, developing skill and improving my abilities. I uh, I want to say both to all these because both are important and you can't, you can't really know where to go by just yourself. If you're don't really have the, uh, the chaos, the knowledge of results that you actually need. Like you can know within your own performance, Hey, I was late on that block. I was early on the, or like behind on the pass, but it might take a coach to identify exactly a point mechanically in which would correct that error or lead to a better timed block or pass. Um, so both are needed. And I think, so as you, and I'm sure you all know this, as you progress in your skill level, I think the feedback then starts to become far more specific, but less often because there's a point of kind of learned or learner correcting where they can sort of facilitate uh, and reflect on what needs to be changed. But there might be those earlier stages where you're giving them a certain bandwidth until they get to that range. And then you're pulling off the amount that you give and letting them self-direct that feedback. Yeah, that's a great concept. Then as a coach, how do you, are you gauging their competence level to to decide like how, how much to pull back on the feedback? Or I guess, how do you decide that? I think you can. Um, what I've also had or talked with other coaches about are just asking the athletes like, Hey, this is what I'm seeing, or this is what like we're working on today. Where like, you tell me when you want feedback. And if there's a time when I, it falls way outside of that range, I'm going to step in, but letting that person self solve, it's going to obviously be a struggle and the person has to be willing to do that. But that's going to get to me, that's going to get that performer to a better spot quicker than if it's, there's not or a little time to process when the learner's um, trying to do that task. So that's autonomy as well, because you're giving them some say over that. There it is. It's built right in. Yeah. Like yeah. It. 
And how do we develop competency in someone if they aren't very motivated to begin with? Oh, you know, that's such a hard question and what I've been running into a lot. I think it's finding ways for them to be more motivated. And that's the question. It's like, okay, how do you do that? And so on an aspect of intrinsic motivation, to me, intrinsic motivation is really hard to come by because it's it's pure. And I don't think anything in this life is really pure in that sense. Um, and so it's going to be tainted with some sort of pressure or idea or concept or person. But the next best thing is sort of that identified regulation in which we can start to identify with what we're doing based on us having this belief that that is a part of who we are. So if I am trying to get someone to do something and they're just totally unmotivated to do it, I might try to pull out the core of that person and maybe who they are. So if that person, uh, I don't know, let's say they like are trying to, or we're asking them to run and they just hate running. I would say, what do you value? Okay, you value commitment to your team. You value uh, commitment to your sport. So how can you take that value and translate it into the task that you hate doing, which is running? So then I would say, if we can build that motivation through there, then we can start to find ways to have them more engaged in the process. And through that, hopefully give them opportunities to practice or at least approach success and failure. And then when they get there, we're appraising the effort that it took to get there and not the end result. And that comes from a lot of um, Carol Dweck's work and growth mindset. And so it's people sometimes, or they might think like, I'm gonna try a task and if I fail, it's over, but I'm, I'm trying. And from a coach, you might be more quick to correct the error rather than praise the effort. And I think even praising that effort allows that person to know that even if they're not succeeding, they're still doing something right in line with that. And if they can build on that effort as competence, that's going to start contributing to overall task competence. I think I just talked myself in a, a big circle. <laughs> trying, trying to, that's a good question. So I'm trying to process it uh, to myself. Yeah. Uh, we've definitely got some challenging ones here. Thanks for taking them on. Yeah. Um, I think when I did like my little research on it, the word connection was used as the third piece, but you mentioned relatedness. Mm -hmm. um, is the same, similar? Are those different concepts, connection, relatedness? I would say they're the same thing. Okay. So then yeah. why, why is that that piece so important? I think for for any of us, we tend to be more engaged with something when we feel connected to what we're doing or when we feel connected to the other people around us. I even, I was thinking about this the other day and I was thinking people love woodworking or some people just love woodworking and craftsmanship. And it's such an isolated kind of culture to, to work with the wood and make your projects. But people go searching for like threads or communities of people sharing their work because they want to feel connected to what other people are doing whether that's for challenge or learning or just to be like, yeah, I'm doing this too. And to feel good about it. And um, I read this book quite some time ago called social by Matthew Lieberman. And, and one of his arguments is that we as like a 
uh, as a species are designed or have evolved in such a way that we seek out social connection. And that's what feeds us and keeps us moving in a positive direction more than trying to be isolated or uh, having some sort of like hierarchy or one thing is better than the other. So I think in kind of that innate nature of us to want to know or be a part of something that feeds into us kind of buying in more when that's presented to us within a, a task or any sort of space or practice environment. And that's also to the task itself. Like, are we, is there a rationale? Is there meaning behind what we're doing? And if there's not, then I'm probably not going to want to do it versus if I'm connected to it, then I'm all in, I'm going to do whatever I can. It helps to have people there too, because that's also going to help, but it's much better than doing something that you have no attachment to or no one to share in that, even the misery with, even if you hate it, at least there's people to commiserate with. <laughs> yes. I'm curious, Billy. So I don't know if you know this map, but Billy is a writer and that seems mm-hmm. like a very solitary task. Like you're, I don't know. I, I wonder, I guess just Billy, how you, do you feel this sense of connectedness or is it more like just me and my keyboard and I'm working away and I'm just intrinsically motivated without the connection? Oh no, for sure. Like if I was just writing with and just burying it in the drawer and nobody ever saw it, I feel I would be very unmotivated. Like what Matt's saying about like, I have this idea that maybe one day people are going to read it and there'll be a connection there because they'll love it. And you know, I'll have a connection there. And also like he was saying, we I do listen to podcasts and read books on other people being miserable writing and struggling. <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah. It makes me feel part of that, that community and that process too. So yeah, even though like day to day I'm sitting alone, um, I guess you have the, the goal that it'll be yeah connected and at the back end. And would you say like the three components of the theory? So you have autonomy, I guess you're choosing when you want to write, how you want to write. It seems like you've developed competence and that's led yeah, would, to you wanting to do it more. I would say the autonomy, especially comes to subject matter, because I think it's like writing a term paper in college might be very low motivation when I get to to choose something um, that I'm passionate about. Like it's, you know, obviously way easier to get to work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can see a lot of this stuff. Yeah. What about the competence piece? Yeah. I mean, if you're, it's, it's hard. I feel like it it goes up and down. It's not like I reach, reach a point you're like, okay, now I'm good and it's easier. Um, but yeah, when you feel like you're writing good stuff, it's a lot easier to keep going. And when it's a struggle, it's like you're hitting a running into a wall. Um, but yeah, hopefully as you, as I get better, uh, I want to write more. That's awesome. So, so Matt, I'm curious, as you were talking about the relatedness, the connection piece, I was thinking of maybe some of the stereotypes with genders, how like maybe a male team, we can just be business partners, especially beach volleyball. It's just, you know, we're business partners. We're, uh, but where this maybe more of a, a thought with female sports, just in general, like you have to be connected and tied together. Do you think that's true or is that just BS and people are better when they're connected? To, to your last point, I do think people are better when they're connected. Um, yeah. We actually had a really interesting conversation in the class I teach today about sort of disagreements on the core on the field tending to permeate outside of the sports setting. And so I think, and it was, it was posed in the sense of like, and this is not me creating any sort of stereotype, but this female athlete was like, I just think we as like women take things more critically and we don't let things happen or stay on the field or stay on the court versus men who are like, it's just on the court. We don't need to take it beyond that. 
And a lot of the men were like, yeah, like it's just easy to let it go because I know they're trying to, to help me. This idea that those, that sort of connection maybe is just more, more permeates outside of the sport context or that specific context versus maybe men in this setting or in this conversation were better at compartmentalizing those emotions and connectedness. Right. Makes sense. And so if uh, you believe that having a deeper connection uh, off the court helps teams be successful, I guess with the teams you work with, how do you foster that? Uh, it's just a lot of things or activities to build that. Um, one of the ways, as I was mentioning at the beginning, was having those 50-minute personal growth conversations. And so in that sort of setting, we meet with the athletes in a, in a team setting where they all come in, we dive into some topic. And in that setting, they're engaging with each other in such a way that's not directly related to sport or practice, but it deals with how they manage their sport expectations or personalized within sport. And from those, and if they're real, can really open up each other to understand what each person is going through. And through that, create some sort of connection and trust to each other and again, even relatedness of like, oh, I didn't know you were struggling with that same issue. Like, so am I. What have you done? Here's what I've done. Can we share that as a way to maybe get better or practice this week and I can hold you accountable for it? So even in those conversations where it's not just doing the sport and trying to connect sort of because you have some sort of task in mind uh, or end state in mind that you want to get to, but now the purpose is just to get to know each other for the end itself of creating some sort of social cohesion versus task cohesion. Mm -hmm. That's great. Uh, I was, I have a friend of mine named Tommy Allgood who has been really interested in self-determination theory. So I asked him for some questions. He had, he had three, one of them you already answered. So two of them, one of them was, can you describe an environment where the interplay of the three components is strongest slash highest? Mm. I would start with, um, I think these things can be provoked by the person or the learner itself, but it's also, I would say, a lot on the person setting up the, the environment to be responsible for those things. So let's say in this conversation, we're talking about a coach. So it's gonna be really hard for a player to walk in and saying, here's my, the autonomy that I want, or here's the competence I need, because it's just really hard. That's not how that dynamic works. But a coach can walk in and say, okay, we have four options today. You have an option of A, B, C, or D. In each of these tasks, already knowing that your ability to com complete this task is capable, like you're capable of doing this, but you're also capable of failing. So that it meets a little bit of that um, rule in which like failure is still present and can happen and should happen for learning to occur. Challenge point. Challenge point. Right. <clears throat> and so then in that, if you say, I want it to be a group consensus on what we do. Now there's a commitment to the group for each other that you're connecting and saying in the best interest of the group, we're going to choose maybe these two tasks to do because we find value in that these are going to help us perform better this week. So there you provided autonomy and that they have some sort of say in what they're doing. You provided confidence and by giving them tasks that they're capable of doing, but can also fail in, but it's needed to get better. 
And then part number three is they're connected and that they get to choose and they get to talk with each other about what's the best process uh, to go about it. So that's what I would say, like maybe an ideal of all the three could look like. It doesn't have to look like that in every situation. It can actually look a lot more subtle, uh, but that would be a very kind of deliberate approach to do that. This might be another impossible one, but if I walked in or if you've walked into a practice space, a gym at Gonzaga, a field, would you be able to like feel that? Like, would you kind of sense it as you walk in this, this sort of energy that of self-determination theory is happening right now? Mm. I, I can definitely tell when it's not happening and that's not specifically at Gonzaga, but just past people I've worked with sure. where autonomy is absolutely gone and competence is either so low that it's boring and that they know and it's just meaningless what they're doing or they see it as meaningless because it's so easy and when they're just so isolated. So it's really easy to tell when it's not happening. It's probably a little bit harder to tell when it is, but you can also know by what the athletes, performers and their engagement level, if they're really engaged, it means they're, they really believe in what they're doing. And that's likely from either a competency standpoint or maybe a relatedness point. I really couldn't tell maybe from the autonomy standpoint, but they believe in what they're doing. They're at least connected to it. So that's a relatedness piece. And if they're pushing themselves at it, that means they feel that they're competent to do it. And it's maybe a little bit challenging enough for them to, to get into that space. I could imagine coaches listening along and being like, oh yeah, I, I do all that. Like I do that. And kind of just mm-hmm. thinking they do. I'm wondering, one, do, do coaches have that awareness? And I guess the places that you've observed, is this common? Like, is this, mm-hmm. or is this a more uncommon trait that it takes yeah, I guess a little bit of extra um, thought and work to create self-determination theory. I think it's becoming more common. And some of the really good coaches that I've connected with are like, no matter what they're doing, they're always asking for feedback on what they're doing because they just desire to get better. And like, just, and I don't want to throw this person in any sort of, conversation but this is a phenomenal coach who is doing everything she can to to meet the needs of the players she's in our conversation giving them choice in what they're doing giving them a task list for the day and saying hey i want you to focus on these like it's up to you on which one you prioritize she is giving them feedback on how to get better where to get better when they want it and asking them like you have to tell me when you want this and how you want it but I'm getting, I'm ready to give it to you. So there's some of that competence piece of knowing what needs to be improved or are you doing well? And then she connects with them every day. And so it's, it's so cool to see someone like that and that she's not the only one. She's just the one I've observed the most. She's very deliberate about it. And I think her athletes appreciate it so much for her. And they've talked about just like the comparison of coaches they've had and how she's so different. And I think it's, cool because that's that's unique but it's also becoming more common as coaches start to emphasize or put a priority on the person behind the mechanics and the techniques in the tactical space because if you take care of that person it's going to allow them to actually perform and be the athlete that you need them to be versus if you're neglecting that and not allowing them to be motivated it's not going to be as good of a practice as it can be 
And for that example you gave where the three components are in play, where you're giving them a group decision and that kind of stuff. Um, if I'm a coach that isn't afraid of losing power, is that something I should be doing every day or is it more impactful if it's, you know, spread out? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would, I would only say spread out in the sense that to not become monotonous or not become uh, where it loses its value. And so if they can see the value in like it's being a shared partnership in the progression, then I think that can be beneficial. But if it's every day walking in like, hey, here's here's four things to do, then there might be some perception from the athletes like, does this coach care? Do they do they know what's best? Are they really guiding us? And maybe that's up to the players to be like, hey, coach, we just want you to tell us we're ready to work. <laughs> like, like come in here. But that's what the really good dynamic. So it's hard to say. I don't really have the best answer for that. <laughs> Got it. And then Tommy has one more question. Have you seen coaches integrate self-determination theory with mental skills? I think somewhat, um, not as deliberately. I would say a lot of that comes, well, I could say all three, but so on my end, it's one of the coaches able to speak to the mental skills in such a way that the athlete has knowledge of what it is, how to use it, when to use it, why to use it. And if that's the case, then it's up to the athlete to then decide when, how, why, and if. Um, so that would be autonomy in that space. So let's give two examples of, let's say, positive self-talk versus uh, acceptance. And in that moment, if you've educated the athlete on those two sort of mental skills, so to say, you've given them the knowledge. Now it is up to you to educate on how, when, why, if they should use that. But ultimately, it's up to their discretion on which one they feel is better for them. Maybe it's different at different times, but it's in their hands. And maybe they'll feel better doing one than the other if they're more connected to it and feel like they've mastered that one more.